Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know my name, I'm Scotty, the pastor here. Um, when I think back, what? You're today. I'm looking excellent. Why, thank you. Uh, I have some special people in the congregation that I do this for. So. <laughs> um, so if I jump back a little bit in, t- in time to the start of the pandemic and early on in the pandemic, I was a part of something here in Portland. I've, I've mentioned it before, but I want to mention it again today. Um, that I'm part of a, an agency in Portland that works collaboratively around the city with different churches working together. Uh, the, the organization is called Together PDX, and under P- Together PDX is this group called Prayer PDX, where we help shepherd and facilitate prayer experiences in the city to help raise prayer throughout Portland. And, and so, in the, like early on, probably six months into the pandemic, it was over the summer, maybe three months in, it was over the summer, uh, as our team had been meeting to pray about the pandemic, as the, the race issues were happening around about the country, uh, as we were praying, it was decided that we wanted to do these prayer vigils around about the city uh, over the summer to help educate us and lean into some of the race issues that were happening in the city. And so what this looked like, um, we partnered with an organization called Civil Righteousness, led by this amazing guy, J.T. Thomas. If I say it out loud, then maybe it'll happen. I'm hoping he's going to come preach here one day soon. Um, he's, he's a really good friend. He's an amazing guy. But um, what it looked like was he does this thing called the Isaiah 58 fast, and he invites people to go into cities to what he calls altars of pain. So go into the city to a place that represents pain for people in the city, and you're just going to pray. And specifically with his organization, the way this this happens is it's usually around race issues. And so what we did over the summer was with the the help of some some of our black pastors in the city, we went to places around Portland that have historical pain for the black community. And we went to the area and what we did was we had our good friend Lisa Saunders, a pastor at Manuel Church in downtown Portland. She would like share kind of the history of what had happened in that location And then it was people from churches all over the city. We would just gather and we would listen and we would pray. They would read Isaiah 58. It would be declared over the city. And then we would gather. And and the way this works with the Isaiah 58 fast that civil righteousness encourages, then we'd uh, form what they call the wall. And so we would just line up in a line uh, around the area or down a street that has significant pain for the community. And everyone got a piece of white duct tape that we'd, we'd write on it, the thing that we wanted to see changed in the community. And everyone would tape it over their mouth and we'd stand and pray in silence. And so you had a wall of believers of all different colors from different churches all over the city lined up down streets in Portland that have been areas of pain for people of color in the city, and we would just in silence cry out to God for the altar of pain to be a place of redemption, and that things would be changed in the city. And uh, the thing that's powerful about these moments, so prayer in and of itself is powerful, but one of the things that really impacted me in this moment, these are what we call prophetic acts. So we were deciding as, as a community, and this was inspired by multiple people around the city, we're going to go gather together and we're going to engage in a prophetic act. We're going to stand in a place that carries historic pain for a community, and we're going to pray and symbolically declare a different reality into that space. And so all summer long in places around the city, it was educational, it was painful, it was hard, it was growing. Uh, it, it, it was fantastic in many senses as we came together. Uh, 
we were making this bold declaration that these areas that are painful are not going to be painful anymore. Um, And so we had these prophetic moments where we declared a different reality over our city, and it it was beautiful and it was educational. We're going to talk about uh, Zechariah 11 and some of, the all, uh, some of the prophetic acts that happen in this passage. Before I want to go there, um, this, this experience that I had in the summer and then what we're about to look at in, in the passage, I think in the middle right now is what happened last night. So if you've been following the news, last night in Buffalo, New York, a young 18-year-old white guy walked into a predominantly black neighborhood, walked into a supermarket and opened fire and killed 10 people and multiple others were injured. Um, and so around our country, things like this happen, um, these racially motivated attacks. And so what I want to do just before I go into the message is just to stop and just have a moment of silence together. And this is not, uh, this is not silence just for the sake of silence. I want us just internally to cry out to God for change in our city. So we want to take this moment of pain and prophetically declare a different reality over our city. So in your heart, hold the people that have have lost family. Uh, Hold in your heart the people that have been injured. Think about the pain and the fear that people will have in that community as they worry about this happening again. And let's just ask God in a minute of silence to change the reality in our country. God, what we see in the news and what we hear is not your desire for our world. And so just now we collectively stand in solidarity with uh, those who have been hurt, with people that are living in fear, with people of color who have had atrocities done against them. We stand in solidarity with them and their pain. God, we stand in solidarity against people that commit these kind of acts. This evil is not something to be tolerated. God, we do not condone it, approve of it in any way. And so, God, we ask that somehow in the, the horrible situation that's happening, that you would work redemptively, that you would re- restore hope, that you would bring change, that you would bring transformation, that you would bring healing. Um, And then we pray for comfort for those who have lost someone special to them, for a community that is now living in fear. Lord, would your comfort rest on them. 
we unite our hearts to yours and we say, God, transform the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. It's a heavy moment. <laughs> and actually, the, the passage that we're in right now, if you remember last week and this week, it's heavy. We're wrapping up the first of two oracles that end the book of Zechariah. And so we're going to look at uh, Zechariah chapter 11, starting at verse 4 today. And rather, this is one of these passages, if you read commentaries, there's, there's just lots of debate about who's what and who's it referring to and what's going on and, and what do the words mean and what's the syntax of the sentence. And so rather than get caught up in the minutiae today of all the little details of this passage, I want to zoom out and remind us of what this is all about. This is a section of scripture that points so, uh, so often to Jesus. And so I want to look at this passage and just simply ask the question, how does this reveal Jesus to us? And then we're going to look at some of what Zechariah does and some of the prophetic acts that he carries out and, and reflect on the significance of that for how we live moving forward. So this is Zechariah, uh, chapter 11, starting at verse 4. You can read along with me. This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I'm rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them, for I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will give everyone into the hands of their neighbors and their king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue anyone from their hands. So I shepherded the flock, marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die, the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. It's a good biblical insult if you want for someone. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. The word of the Lord. <laughs> nice, joyous passage for today. So let's look at this and try and uh, approach it from a redemptive lens. I want to look at four ways that this passage points very specifically to Jesus and then look at some of the prophetic action and what that might mean for us today. 
Um, so first of all, Zechariah in this passage is being commissioned. This is a commission moment. He's been commissioned by God to be the shepherd over the flock. And in this uh, moment, like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, he's given a commission. Like when we think of being commissioned into ministry, we think of being commissioned into successful ministry, right? We want it all to go well. Everything's going to be good. It's going to go forward the way we dream and imagine. A lot of the times the Old Testament prophets are called into ministry that's hopeless. How would you feel to be called as the shepherd of a flock that's going to be slaughtered? And think about it as a church for a minute or a community of people. How would you feel to be called to to lead a group of people that are going to be decimated? Um, So he's been called and commissioned into this role as a good shepherd over the flock uh, that's not going to be successful. And we know all about a good shepherd who came and shepherded a flock uh, and wasn't received the way he was supposed to be. Jesus, the scriptures make it clear, as as acting at this moment, he is pointing ahead to the good shepherd that's that's to come. If you like your Bible and you like to go study these things afterwards, go read uh, Jeremiah 23, uh, read Ezekiel 34 and 37, which are significant passages prophesying of the good and the bad leaders and the good shepherd that would come uh, to lead God's people forward. Yeah. Jesus is the good shepherd. Let me look at John chapter 10 just to remind us of what he himself says about this and how he fulfills what Zechariah is acting out in this moment. John 10, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not uh, own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's just a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them. Uh, They too will listen to my voice and there, there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again because this is the command that I receive from my Father. Jesus declaring that he is the good shepherd. What you don't realize is when you're reading in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is talking to the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, and he's prophesying, woe to you shepherds, you have failed in the duty that God has given you. Rather than caring for the sheep, you've made it all about yourself. You care more about riches and honor and wealth. You're part of the oppression and the difficulties that the people are experiencing. Woe to you shepherds. You're going to be wiped out. And then he uses this language, I myself, this is God prophesying through Ezekiel, I myself am going to come and shepherd the people. I myself am going to come and seek and save what was lost. So when Jesus is in John 10 and he's declaring that I'm the good shepherd, he's declaring I am God who has come to shepherd his people and take over from the foolish leaders who are failing to do what God has called us to do. Um, So John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. As Zechariah acts out this moment, he's trying to show us uh, on God's behalf the kind of shepherd that he's supposed to be. And, And what do you see in the passage as he shepherds? He shepherds them with love, with grace. He comes to these people and ministers to them and they reject him. Um, uh, he, he confronts the leaders. It says he gets rid of three of, the, three of the other shepherds. And so he's like, I began to lose my patience with the people and the people started to detest me. 
Sounds like Jesus, as he confronted the religious leaders and the people began to detest him for challenging their system. Jesus is the good shepherd that Zechariah is enacting in this moment. When you jump to the end of the passage, um, there's, there's this foil moment. If you're a literary buff, foil is just where in literature they put another character to paint a contrast between the original character. So at the end of the passage, Zechariah is asked to enact a different role. And so they say, what I want you to do is put on the outfit of a foolish shepherd. And you're going to model for the people the kind of leader that they're now going to have for rejecting the good shepherd that was supposed to be here. So this is what it says right at the end. The Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, uh, sheep tearing off their hooves. So in this moment, We see this contrast as Jesus is revealing to us his ministry, um, the the ministry of the good shepherd. So I've got here five bullet points. So this is point two. There's a second slide. This is slide 11. Um, So if you look at this passage as Jesus, you're a little little ahead of us. Slide two says Jesus' ministry. Thanks, Carrie, for helping us out. Oh. You want to jump right down to the end? Go to number four. There we go. Thanks. I reordered them, but Carrie must have been too quick for me this morning. Thanks, Carrie. So right at the end of the passage, Jesus is saying, this is, or God is saying to Zechariah, you're going to arm yourself like the foolish shepherd, and, and this is what it's declaring to the people. As you act this out, I'm going to raise up the shepherd, and here's what he's going to look like. He's not going to care for the lost. He's not going to seek the young. He's not going to heal the injured. He's not going to feed the healthy, but he's going to eat the meat of the best sheep, even to the point of ripping off their hoofs to get a tiny little bit of meat that's left inside there. He's just going to gorge himself. So in this moment, so at the beginning, Zechariah enacts, I am the good shepherd, and there's a good shepherd coming who's going to challenge the fallen leaders and lead the people and care for the oppressed. And then at the end, because you reject that, you're going to end up with another leader over you, and he's not going to care for the heart of God. And in this moment, as he's painting this picture of the bad leaders, it's an image of the kind of ministry that the good shepherd is going to have. And we know when Jesus came, that he came and we saw him care for the lost. We saw him welcome the little children, let the little children come to me, and he blessed them. We saw him running around healing the injured and blessing them. He took those who were healthy and spiritually hungry, and he fed them, and he anointed them, and he empowered them, and then he sends his spirit on them to go out into the world. And he was the antithesis of self-gratification. Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself and made himself nothing. So as Zechariah is acting this out for the people of Israel, he's acting out the kind of leader they're supposed to long for, that he doesn't realize he's painting of Jesus when he would come and the kind of ministry that he would live and that he would lead. In between these two pictures are these two prophetic acts that he carries out um, that, that are significant for who Jesus is. Um, so if you go to number three, um, you have this moment that, uh, where he grabs a rod and a staff and he labels one favor and he labels the other one unity. If I was really clever, I would have made staffs 
and I would have them up here, but I'm not that clever. So he has these two staffs, and so he's acting out this role of a good shepherd, and so he takes these staffs, and he's walking around with these words visible to all of the people. And I want you to think for a minute. If God did a prophetic act here where he had me stand up on the stage and say, here is what I'm going to do for your church. I'm going to pour out favor upon you, and then I'm going to make you experience unity. We're going to be excited, right? Who in here wants favor and unity upon our church, right? So we look at it and we think, this is amazing. We want these things. We want to be people of favor and unity. They're longing for these two principles, but not realizing that Jesus is the person that these come through. Let me look at a couple of scripture passages here. So favor, this is not the word, typically the word favor in in the Old Testament is the word that we translate grace. Um, But this is actually a unique word that's not used as often, and it can mean beauty or delight or favor. Um, So here's a couple of ways it's used in the Psalms. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Whose beauty do we gaze on when we stand in the temple but the face of our Jesus? Oops, I can't remember what the next psalm is. It's not Psalm 27. (laughs) May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, the work of our hands for us. So this word favor is connected to the blessing that God pours on his people so that they can do the work that he's called us to do. So Jesus, he is the favor of God. He is the beauty of God. He is the one upon whom we're gazing, but he's also the source of favor and beauty and delight because God delights in us because he made us but delights in us even more because he looks at us and sees us connected to and delighting in his son. So Jesus is the favor of God and the source of that favor. Jesus is also the cause of unity. So Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Jesus is the agent of unity. He is bringing Jew and Gentile together. He is bringing the lost to himself. He is working in the church, making us agents of reconciliation. So when Zechariah is walking around with these two words in his hands, and people are like, yes, we're getting favor and we're getting unity, they're more caught up on what these traits mean for them as a community and not about the person through which these traits are going to come. Well, I should keep these up because what happens next in the story? (laughs) As he's walking around and and he's, he's saying, I'm the good shepherd, these are the traits that God is promising. 
All of a sudden, as he challenges the leaders, the leaders that are stopping favor and unity resting on the people, the, 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 the leaders who are, are causing oppression and misuse, the passage actually hints at the leaders of Israel are selling their own people to other nations. They're selling them to be slaughtered into foreign armies. They're selling them as slaves. They're taking the poor who couldn't afford their debts, who are now enslaved within Israel as a way of paying off their debts and being protected. They're taking them and selling them to other forces. So those people that are supposed to be guiding people in favor and blessing as they pursue God and his will are not. And so Jesus, uh, Zechariah starts removing these leaders. The people get annoyed at him. They remove him out of his office. And so what does he say? I get fed up with them. They get fed up with me. So I said, no longer will I be your shepherd. And in that moment, he's declaring the truth of God that when you walk away from me, I refuse to be your shepherd. And he says, he, he stands in front of the people and he takes the rod that says favor and he snaps it and leaves it lying in front of them. And he says, because favor is now gone. And in that moment, he is reversing a previous prophetic act. Are you aware of it? What was the previous prophetic act? There's a phone on the floor. Have fun. Ezekiel 37. I'm not putting all the words up here. I'm just going to read this to you. This is Ezekiel um, 37.15. As he is being given this command by God to go out and enact this in the world. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they become one in your hand. So this is the promise. God had called the nation of Israel. He'd led them to this point where David is leading his people in a united kingdom. And after David, the kingdom ruptures because some people are failing to follow God and they're worshiping other gods. And so the kingdom ruptures. And from that point in history, Israel has the kingdom of Judah, God and the kingdom of Israel under Ephraim are walking away from God and they're divided. And so this promise keeps existing. I'm going to bring Judah and I'm going to bring Israel or Ephraim and I'm going to unite them as one again. This is the promise that they're walking towards. So when Zechariah is walking around with this shepherd garb on and, and a, a, a rod that says favor on it, they're going, this is it. Favor and unity. This is coming back. God's favor is on us. He's reuniting his people. Let me keep reading in, in Ezekiel 37. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him. I will join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold it before their eyes, the stick that you've written on, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of all the nations where they'd gone, See the context we're in in Zechariah as they're coming back from exile. I'm going to gather them from all of the nations where they've gone. I'll gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I'm going to make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. There will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols and vile images or with any of their offenses for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. 
My servant David will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws. They'll be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So as, uh, as uh, Zechariah has favor and unity in his hands, uh, they're understanding this prophecy. The prophecy of a united kingdom is coming again. We've been brought back to the land. The temple has been restored in the midst. It's coming. And in that place, as they fail, he rips up favor. He stands in front of them and he takes the sticky unity. And he breaks it in front of them and he drops it on the ground and he says, because you are rejecting me, the covenant that I made, the covenant that says I'm holding all of the nations so that they can't harm you, that favor is no longer there and you're now going to be subject to the nations. The unity that we're longing for of Israel or Judah and Ephraim coming back together is gone. Because you've disobeyed me. So uh, this is happening. You, you can feel, well, I'm hoping you can feel the, the pain that they would be feeling, the shock of God revoking this promise and, and giving them over to the nations round about them. God, in, in this moment, as Zechariah enacts these breaking moments, he's undoing the prophetic declaration that Ezekiel did before when he tied those sticks together and declared unity. Oh, I hope this is never a church where as we're moving forward, the work we're doing is undoing the prophetic declarations that God has spoken over our church in the past. So Jesus, our favor and our unity, but how does this favor and unity come about? How does Jesus' favor and unity come about? How does our access to favor and unity come about? How do we as a church walk in the favor and the unity of God? How does it come about? It comes about through 30 pieces of silver in this passage. The last moment that Zechariah enacts here, this prophetic declaration, it says, I told them, goes to the leaders, if you think it's best, give me my pay. So pay me what you think I'm worth for the season that I've done shepherding you people. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. If it's not clear, that sentence is completely sarcastic. (laughs) Uh, We're like, 30 pieces of silver, I'll take it. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Let me fast forward to where we know this passage from, right? Matthew 26 and 27. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Then we jump into 27. Early the next morning, didn't take very long, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans about how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to, to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, see, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. 
So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. A little side note, Matthew says Jeremiah, um, sometimes the scroll of Zechariah is on the back of the scroll of, or joined to the scroll of Jeremiah, sometimes. So they think that may be why Matthew attributes it to Jeremiah there. This moment in, in Matthew's gospel, this moment that Zechariah is enacting this prophetic act as he walks out this in front of the people. Here is me as, as the, the leader. Here is me taking on this role of the shepherd. Pay me the wages you think I'm, I'm worth. They hand him. They of their own volition hand him 30 pieces of silver. And in so doing, set the price that Judas is going to get for his betrayal of Jesus. Why 30 pieces of silver? This is the part that I just think is uh, so revelatory. Exodus, there's lots of instructions for what happens uh, when someone uh, is hurt or injured and what recompense should look like in that moment. Exodus 21 is where we get the passage, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. So someone in in Israel that's worthy is hurt, you're going to hurt the other person in response. But this is their instructions when it comes to slaves. Exodus 21.32, if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. So what is 30 pieces of silver? It's the price for a slave who is gored to death. Jesus. As scripture tells us, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, made himself nothing, taken on the nature of a doulos, a slave. But not just a slave, but even given himself over to death on the cross. This moment that Zechariah is enacting, as he goes and says, hey, pay me what you think I'm worth, out of scorn, the, the leaders say, you're nothing better than a, than a, than a servant or a slave who, who's been condemned to die. That's all you're worth. And in that moment, paints the picture for us of what Jesus is going to do when he comes to give himself for us. So in this passage, Zechariah is, is engaging in these prophetic acts. He is pointing to the good shepherd. He's shown the foil of the, the bad shepherd and what his ministry thus is going to look like. He's, he's, he's shown us this, uh, these prophetic declarations of the covenant being broken and, and these things that are longing for being removed from them. He's showing them uh, the that the, the fallen leaders put on the person that is called to do God's work. All of those point to Jesus, our good shepherd, our favor, our source of unity, the one who was the slave, gored for our salvation, um, and the one who ministers seeking and saving the lost, healing the sick, going after the children, and ministering to the healthy. You know, in our culture, we are not as versed in prophetic acts as they are back here. Um, it's not language that we tend to use in the evangelical church. We don't tend to think about this a whole lot. But I want to reframe some things for a moment. What is a prophetic act? A prophetic act is something that we do in the physical realm 
in response to an instruction from God that declares in faith God's reality spiritually to happen in our midst. So it's something we do in the physical world that paints a picture for the watching world of something that God is seeing or offering and we're holding in faith that God will do this. So taking communion is a prophetic act because Jesus tells us when you drink the eat, when you eat the body and you drink the blood you pro- you proclaim his death until he comes so every time we take communion and engage the bread and the wine we are engaging in a prophetic act that communicates something to the world of the sacrifice that he makes and declares that he will return uh, a few weeks ago, as we were looking at the vision of the, the lampstand, at the end of the service, we had an opportunity to be anointed with oil. That anointing with oil is a prophetic act. Why? Because in the sermon preparation, God said, you should anoint people with oil as a symbol of being filled with the Spirit. So in the physical realm, in response to God, we engaged in an act that said, we're going to just do this little visual thing. We're going to put oil on your head and your hands. And in that moment, declare that the fullness of the Spirit is going to rest on this church. Commissioning or laying on of hands is a prophetic act. We gather people around and we say, we want to pray for you. You're you're going off to the mission field. We're, We're sending you on a trip. We're going to gather around. We're going to lay hands and pray for you. We're declaring a prophetic act that they're going to go. They're going to be protected. They're going to be fruitful in the work that they do. And as they go, we go with them. And they carry the authority of this church into what they do. Um, when we pray for the sick and we heal uh, and we anoint them with oil for healing, it's a prophetic act that says we are trusting by laying hands on you that we're imparting life to you, that we're with you in the healing journey. We're anointing you with oil to say it's the work of the Spirit that's going to bring healing in your life. It's a prophetic declaration, a spiritual reality breaking into the physical. I want to reframe one other thing that's going on right now that I fully believe and our leadership team believes is a prophetic act. Renaming our church is a prophetic act. This is something that we're looking to do in the physical realm. It's not just a rebranding exercise. It's not just how do we make our church look good to the community out there. This is a, it's a prophetic act. We're saying God seems to be stirring this in us, so we are going to do something physical and visual to represent to the world what God is saying and to hold in faith over our church that we are going to arise as his people, shine his light in the community, declare his resurrection, see people rescued from darkness into light. And the thing that's most beautiful about this for me As the leadership team has been calling people, as we've been talking to you, the sense of unity and excitement in this church around this moment is amazing. And did you know that unity is not just a desired fruit? We don't just want unity so that we can say as a church, like we're walking together in unity. In unity, God can release something over a community that he cannot release without it. Unity is a prophetic declaration that we believe God is leading and that we're standing in this together. So the work that you're doing to come along in this journey is a prophetic moment that is going to release things over our church that couldn't otherwise. 
Um, so the, the things that we're doing as a church, whether it's communion, whether it's anointing people with oil, whether it's praying for healing, whether it's laying hands on people and sending them out, whether it's renaming our building, whether it's we go out and we, at prayer rooms, as we gather, what are prayer stations? You write your sins on a piece of paper and you stick them in the shredder. It's a prophetic declaration that your sins are done with and cleansed and whole. These things we do are declaring a new reality over us. And why? Because it's all focused on Jesus, our good shepherd. It's all about us as agents of his favor and unity into the world. It's all about us responding to what he wants to do. So just as Zechariah stood up and enacted these Moments, these acts in front of Israel that declared a reality to them. That's what we're invited into as his people. Everything we do from baptism to communion to the way we love people to washing feet to laying on hands to praying for healing to even something as trivial as it seems as renaming a church. This is what we're called to, to be people that walk into the world prophetically enacting the truth of God so the watching world can see his truth and that we can stand in faith that the things he's calling us to do and the things that he's said from beginning to end will take place, all because of a slave who was gored for the compensation of 30 pieces of silver. What a price he paid, but what a gift he gives us to walk in the world and make a difference. Let me pray, and then we'll worship. God, the responsibility that you put on our shoulders is sometimes uh, heavier than we can ever understand. Uh, Lord, we as, as physical people, as Trudy was sharing, as Aaron was saying at the Arise Day yesterday, we are, we are physical peop- people that think they're engaged in a spiritual reality, when in reality we're spiritual people who are living this human existence. And so, God, we walk through the world engaged in physical things, and we lose sight of the power that is happening in the spiritual realm as we do it. God, as we pray, it's not just opening our mouths, but the power of heaven comes behind our prayer to render change. God, as we take communion, it's not just symbolic of your body and your blood, and we do it just as a memory. God, as we do that, we take your death into our body, and we walk out empowered by you and changed. God, as we lay hands on people, we are imparting your authority. We're stating unity. We're commissioning and sending in your authority with all of your power and presence behind it. Lord, as we anoint the sick, we are declaring that you're a healing God, that your power is at work and through it all, that even if healing doesn't come, the ultimate healing is found on the day of the resurrection when we see you face to face and our soul is united with you in a way that we would never imagine possible. So God, would you help us to look beyond the physical? Would you help us to be a church that steps up, that arises into the calling that you've given us? And that we would walk out prophetically declaring the truth of your death and resurrection to a dying world. God, use us to bring change. May your name be exalted. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.